Hello everybody, Dr. F. Scott Field here, and I'd like to introduce you to our newest sponsor. The NPTE Final Frontier is the review course that I wish was around when I took the board exam. For those of you who know my story, it took me a handful of times to pass that exam, and quite frankly, I really wish I had an an exam review course around, uh, just like the NPTE Final Frontier. Uh, Check out their website, npteff.com, and use the code HET at checkout for 10% off to all of our listeners and fans. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Dr. F. Scott Field, and I have with me today uh, somebody who I have the esteemed pleasure of just getting to know recently and starting to work with a little bit over on the uh, private practice section side of things, uh, Dr. Ira Gorman. Ira, thank you so much for coming on today and kind of uh, giving our, our audience an insight into all things assistant dean and, and what that looks like. If you wouldn't mind, could you tell our audience a little bit about your academic journey and how it's kind of led you to where you're at today? Well, thank you, Dr. Field. Scott, it's been a pleasure to get to know you in the last few months, and, and I'm always happy to talk about uh, my journeys. So, you know, you mentioned we connected from the private practice section. I started in private practice many years ago. After I finished school, I opened up a private practice. I developed that practice into multiple sites, eventually ended up selling it to a for-profit corporation that I worked with for a number of years as a clinic director. But during that time, I also went back to school and received a master's of science in public health because I was very much interested in injury prevention from the population I was treating. So when a new school was being developed in Colorado in 1994, I just finished my master's and sold my practice to this company. And was looking for, you know, other ways to use my talents and tools, although I had intended to stay in the clinical area. But uh, this new program was being developed. People were being taken from the clinical side, not so much the academic side, even though I did have an advanced master's degree, which was very popular at that time. Remember, we did not have DPTs at that point. So in the entry-level degree for PT was a master's. So if you had an advanced master's, Uh, outside of an MPT or something, you were very attractive to the academic community. So I uh, jumped on board and helped develop this program from the ground up, and then eventually became an associated or affiliate faculty. And then once I left my corporate position and decided to jump full force into academia in the early 2000s, I was a part of the ranked faculty. I then started on my PhD uh, headed towards a terminal degree, and have been here ever since. I've been at Regis now since the beginning of the program, and has been a faculty member for 27 years. That's awesome, man. I have a very uh, similar journey. You know, I didn't think I'd ever leave clinical. I just loved it too much. But you know, then COVID hit, and things got a little crazy. And luckily, I had you know just finished my terminal degree, my EDD in 2018. So I thought I was going to use it when I retired. You know, but here we are now. <laughs> Full, full force into academia and, uh, you know, plugging along. So, you know, Ira, we have you on today to talk a little bit about your current position. You are currently uh, an assistant dean at the university. Can you tell us what exactly that is? What, what does that position entail? What, what does that job look like? Well, first of all, it's important to understand kind of the organization of academia. So when we did start um, our program, we, had, we were a program in physical therapy. But once we moved into uh, becoming a school, and that was because we started a pharmacy program and a nursing program, and so each of these are schools within our college of health professions. Once you have a school, then you are required to have a dean. So our program director uh, became elevated to a dean 
Um, and as our program grew over the last few years, and I was a faculty member, as I said, for many years within that school, but then as the school became bigger and we had multiple programs, so we have a, a, a entry-level DPT program, which we have a program director. We also have a post-professional program where we have a residency and fellowship program in manual therapy and orthopedics. And we also have an undergraduate HES program, and we have an OTD program that we work with Creighton. So all of those come under the school. Then the dean, of course, needs a little bit more assistance, and we developed a, an assistant dean position. We also include our program director of the DPT in our leadership team. So we have a three-person dean's team, we call, which is made up of the dean of the school, the assistant dean, who I am, and our program director of the DPT. And we make all the, the administrative decisions and leadership decisions for the school, of course, within cooperation with our faculty. As an assistant dean, of course, the first role is to be assistant to the dean and to do what the dean needs and, and kind of step in uh, when that person is not available or assist in decision making. But also, I've taken on some particular responsibilities that I had before, but that I enjoy. I still teach, but though my teaching is less because my workload is 50% administrative. So I teach courses as needed, and I still teach my courses of health policy and diagnostic imaging and professional issues and, and whatever else I need to stand in. Sometimes somebody can't come in one day and I'm the go-to person because I've been here so long and I've taught probably every class. I can step in easily. So certainly with COVID, that was an ask quite a bit. But I also administer our affiliate faculty. So I run our affiliate faculty program, handle all the contracts, recruit, do training, evaluation, and of course, assign affiliates to different classes. I also manage our lab. So I have other administrative assistants who coordinate our lab and our equipment and, and make sure everything is working and operational and, and keeping our lab going for 84 students. We have a large uh, clinical lab with 27 high-low tables and a bunch of equipment. So I stay on top of that as well. Also, because I love clinical work as much as you do, I do run our faculty practice. So we have a faculty practice on campus of about eight faculty who work two to three to four hours a week. I'm probably over there about six hours treating patients. And we treat about 30 patients a week, you know, 120 a month. So, and we've had that faculty practice for quite a while. And it allows me to continue in my clinical role. Um, it also allows me to use my administrative experience as running a practice and a private practice. And to be honest with you, I run it, we run it like a private practice. And I think we'll really strongly that and service to what we provide and how we compensate our uh, faculty in there. So um, I also serve on an assistant dean's team meeting throughout the university. So I do a lot of networking throughout campus and other uh, schools and other colleges. And that's one of my roles to kind of be the external face of our school. So all in all, it's, it's, it's a busy, complicated, but very interesting workload. And, and because of my nature of probably being a little bit ADD, I like doing different things and I like kind of moving around and, and it suits me well. The other big thing I, I do is I put out fires and sometimes that's good and bad. Again, it fits my nature, but I go into work every day and sometimes I don't know what I'm going to be doing because as I said, I'm just putting out the fires, whether it's a piece of equipment broken or a faculty not available or something we need to work with in the university as far as policy or 
or things like that. So yeah, I'm a fireman. Yeah, I love that, Ira. That there's so much to unpack there. First off, I love this talk because this your university is very similar to University of St. Augustine, where you know it's a health sciences college. We have a school for OT, speech, physical therapy, and a couple others as well that they're you know slowly onboarding. We do have a, a faculty type clinic. I think right now it's kind of starting out as a pro bono clinic for pediatrics, but I think the hope is to grow that eventually, you know, little by little. So that's, that's on the horizon. One of the interesting things that you kind of talked about is you still teach obviously, which is great. I think, you know, for me, I see myself teaching for quite some time just because I love it and I, I, A, want to get better at it, but B, I need the experience. I think I need the reps. I like to, you know, learn the process of teaching and learning, having gone through an EDD, I, I you know, feel like I still have a lot to implement and, and a lot of it's taking feedback and closing those loops and trying to improve, you know, semester over semester. One of the things though, that is a huge part of, of being an assistant dean, it sounds like is, is the administrative part of things, you know, did you feel like uh, you were prepared in any way, shape or form for that transition or that administrative load that you were taking on? Did you know what you were getting into or how did that kind of go about? So to be honest, um, and I'll be very frank, I, I probably haven't had a lot of formal leadership training. I've learned kind of on the job. I've had some great mentors and leaders over the years when I first started in practice who yeah. were and, and that's not uncommon for physical therapists, right? To just learn right. on the job. That's that's very exactly you know, out in the real yeah. world. That's how it is. And so fortunately I had a lot of clinical expertise and, and again managing private practice as an owner, but then also managing the practice for a large corporation, uh, which are different skills, but certainly then I was, you know, exposed to management hierarchy and, and budgeting and and certainly how to compensate individual therapists and things like that. My academic experience came from being a member of the faculty for and now 27 years. So even though I didn't have specific leadership positions, stepping into the assistant dean and applying for that, I felt very comfortable because I knew the university, I knew our program, and, and I just knew how things operated internally. Clearly, again, you're still learning on the job. And COVID has thrown us all a big... Uh, wrench in it of how we operate and how the university has operated and under different constraints. So it, it's been kind of interesting, frustrating at times, I'll admit, but also challenging. The other thing about the administrative aspect, of course, is, is dealing with students. And, you know, the, another great mentor of mine, Tom Poyle, once said, you know, you can complain about students all we want, but if no students, no job, you know, so that's what we do, just like we talk about patients that way. So uh, we really need to cater to their desires and needs. But students have changed a lot since I went to school 40 years ago. And so we all have to get used to that of, of a, a, a population or generation, let's say, that's a little bit different and has different um, desires and different expectations and different skills. You know, when it comes to technology, I'm still considered the old guy who's struggling with certain technology. And of course, students take for granted certain things that I might complain about. So sometimes it's just, I am also the Part of my role, one of the things is I'm also in charge of the student affairs committee. So certainly if there is a student issue of retention or professional behavior, uh, that comes to me and, and the committee I put together. So that's that's actually my biggest challenge, but also, you know, faculty as well. A lot of the faculty are much younger than I am too. So I bring up the generation thing only because I think I'm wise and have a lot of experience, but I also have to be very cognizant of that. Um, a lot of the people are, are younger than I am and have grown up in a different social and 
educational environment, and I need to be very aware of that. So Yeah, so I'll bridge the gap for you a little here. Tom McPoyle gave the keynote speech at my graduation from a master's program at East Carolina University. So he, he was a great speaker. We enjoyed having Tom. He's a great benefit to the profession for sure. I can um, also throw one more connection. I was going to get it in at some point, but yeah. I'll do it now. As clearly, Stanley Paris has been a very good friend of mine over the years, and actually he was the one who always reminded me that has, having an advanced master's in the early days made me very popular, very attractive to academic programs. And, and Wanda Nietzsche, who became the president of St. Augustine, was a classmate of mine at Stony Brook many years ago. Stony Brook, Long Island. That's uh, I took a couple summer classes there to, in order to get into my master's program. So brings me back to the hometown days for sure. You know, I think one of the things too that's kind of funny, Ira, is that we... <laughs> You know, I, again, I was a master's program, but I felt that I saw the the profession heading into the doctorate, you know, of, of physical therapy. So I, I started my transitional doctorate at ECU. I ended up having to finish it at, at St. Augustine, actually. And then I went on to do the EDD at St. Augustine as well. So I've kind of seen both sides of being a student at St. Augustine and now also being faculty too. So I, I enjoyed the program so much that I, you know, that's where I ended up coming back to, to end up teaching. So it was, it was neat for me, but moving forward, you know, like I said, I want to teach, I want to get better at it. I want to do it for quite some time and get my reps in and my experience. But also I, I do see some leadership for me, you know, down the line, I see possibly pursuing, you know, positions uh, like a program director, like a dean or an assistant dean or something, you know, higher and higher and higher up the uh, academic chain, if you will. Was that something that you had set your heart on and that was something you wanted to pursue or did it just kind of happen naturally with, with, you know, the, the university uh, growing and, and, and expanding? You know, it's, it's a very interesting question. And people have always asked for me, in fact, when I first came to Regis being a Jesuit university, a lot of people talked about the calling they had for education. And I didn't grow up in that environment. So it was actually a foreign term for me. I've always done things what have been asked of me. And, and that's not to downplay a different route, but I've always believed that my success and I'm very proud of it, has been because I've been in the right place at the right time. And when somebody asks me to do something, I, I say, I don't even say yes, I say how and when, you know. And so I've been in that position. When Regis decided to start a program, I was part of a clin ed group in town. And somebody came to me and said, how would you like to be part of this? And, and I said, sure. And then I started teaching. And not that I don't seek out for things. I've always been asked. At one point, I always said, I don't think I've applied for too many jobs in my career because I've had jobs for a long time, but I've also been asked to do something. And then I say yes, rather than going through an application process and everything. And so I did apply for the assistant dean position, but again, it was, I had been here for 20 years plus, and it just seemed natural when that position opened and we had somebody who left that I would step into it because I had the experience. So, you know, it was an opportunity that was made available to me and, and I just felt natural. Clearly being at a university for a long period of time, I felt I had things to offer that would fit with that. But, you know, again, as long as I was able to continue teaching and continue clinical work with that, I felt it was a natural position for me. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm not a firm believer in luck. I feel like if you work hard enough and, and you do the right things and you like you said, you surround yourself with the right people for the right amount of times, eventually opportunities will present themselves to you and you have to be ready to pounce on them when they when they happen. And that to me is more 
like what luck seems is doing the right things and working hard and putting yourself in the positions to possibly have those opportunities, you know, arise. So, you know, I think that that's very, you know, I, well, like you said, you haven't had to apply for many jobs. People come and ask you because they know your skill set, they know your strengths. And, you know, that that's a commendable thing to, to have, you know, that's a trait that I think is really perfect for an assistant dean type position. And, and so let's talk about that a little bit. What are some of the traits that you think really would, would help somebody if they were looking to get into an assistant dean position? What are, what are some qualities they should have? And, and maybe what are some steps they should take to, to kind of start positioning themselves to, to move their way up the ladder? Well, the first thing is, is the ability to get along with others. I mean, being a, an assistant, anything means that you uh, work closely with the person that you're assisting, you know, and whether it's, you know, some places calls an associate, which is more of a peer, but, but whether assistant or associate, you're under a person who has that leadership position. And I think it's important to recognize you have comfort being an assistant and how you're going to complement yourself to that person. So having a good working relationship with that person and then other people that are around you. An assistant dean also, as I said, is a very big networking position within our school, college, and university. So I have advantage. I've known a lot of people at the university because I've been here for so long. So I can reach out and network and, and serve on committees throughout the university because I know people, but I've also gotten along with people. So I think it's, you know, putting that ego a little bit aside and being able to, uh, you know, offer, you know, kind of an, in a networking coordination plan. There's also the ability, as I said, to, to understand students and get along with students. And, and as I said, in the changing environment we've had, sometimes it's challenging, but I think it's an important because, you know, you have to be there for your faculty and your students. The other thing that I, I forgot to mention earlier on, but there's another part of my life, which is, of course, PTA association work and, and professional and so I've served on some boards at the state level, uh, Colorado Commission for Affordable Healthcare. I'm presently on the state board for physical therapy in Colorado. So, and I, for years, I was in the House of Delegates and had a number of leadership positions in APTA, including president of the health policy and administration section. So the point is, is that I also have that networking that I can bring into the university. So as an assistant dean, I could bring those contacts in to my faculty peers and also to my students. I've had a number of members of Congress and state legislators come into my health policy class because of the work I, I've done at the state level. I've had presidents of APTA, Sharon Dunn has been a speaker in my class. I work closely now with Bill McGee, who's a colleague of mine and has his office across the hall, but he's also the speaker of the house. So I still maintain a very strong connection with APTA and, and I can use those resources for my students and for my faculty and our university to get information, to network, and expose our students and help them become future leaders as well through role, role modeling. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there, Ira. Networking is such a huge aspect of, you know, any any job or, or you know, position, but more so it seems like, you know, the higher up you get, uh, you've really got a pool from your network to, you know, a, put out fires sometimes, right? But B, to, to help the university or to help your students or, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times, you know, I've heard this just in talking with deans and assistant deans and people that, you know, are in those positions, how A, their professional careers outreach just the world of physical therapy. They were involved in boards and committees that reached across several different 
professions. Uh, and that became very important because again, it showed that you could work well with others, right? You could play in the sandbox, so to speak, very peacefully with everybody, you know? And so I think that that becomes important, but I tell my students all the time that, you know, your network is your net worth, you know? And I, I, I say that half jokingly because it's a cliche phrase, but it's cliche because it's true. Like you said, I, I very rarely have applied for jobs. It's mostly come from people that have needed something and seen my skill sets and been like, okay, you're a pretty good fit here. Would you be interested? You know, and that, that goes a long way. If you're, you're worried or anxious or struggling to try to find a job or a position, if you can lean on your network a little bit to help get you there, you know, that's a, that's a huge benefit in the end. And then, like you said, the higher up the ladder you get, the bigger your network becomes. I mean, this podcast alone, my network has grown tenfold just by having, you know, interesting people like yourself on and, and just asking them, you know, who, who should I talk to? Who, who needs to be on the show? Who has a great message to spread, you know? And, and that has really helped me kind of, you know, branch out a little bit further than I would have if I was just working, you know, my nine to five clock in clock out as a physical therapist or as a professor or whatever it may be, you know? So I think the network is, is huge. You know, I think you said that's something very point. interesting about the networking, especially outside of physical therapy. And it's actually one of the things I feel very strongly about. And again, because I have a master's in science in public health. So I've, I've functioned in this other world of public health and I've been on boards and um, committees and commissions uh, for that health policy expertise and for that population prevention public health, which I believe PT needs to move into more and embrace. And the two favorite lines I love hearing in my life are, one is, would you be interested, which you just said, which I love, you know, because when somebody says that, you know, they're interested in you. But the other one is, and you're a PT as well, because I've come to certain meetings because of my public health and prevention expertise and interest. And then I serve on this. And then I start talking about being a physical therapist. And I always get that line. And you're a physical therapist too. And I didn't realize physical therapists would be interested in this or have expertise in that. So I've really made that my mission. And I tell that with my students. And, and I think APTA is now moving in that with health and wellness and population health and terms that we just didn't hear in the past because physical therapists were well-respected by our patients. We worked at the individual level wonderfully, but now we have to look beyond that. And we have to be looked at as other health professionals, including physicians, nurses, and even pharmacists who are out there in the public eye. And physical therapists need to do a better job with that. And COVID has been, I hate to use the word opportunity. I, I tell people, I don't like talking about COVID as an opportunity for anything when 800,000 people have died. But it has given us some exposure of our skills and tools to be able to work at a pandemic level, including stepping into respiratory therapy operate, you know, uh, skills or responsibilities in hospitals, including giving vaccinations, you know, at our university and our state physical therapy scope of practice was expanded to include that if we were needed to, to do so. So I think we were, we were recognized as health professionals that can step in and do different things and move out of our traditional role. Not to take anything away from that, but I think we can expand it. And I hope that's where we're going as a profession. Yeah, I think there's some really good people out there beating that drum. I think, you know, Mike Eisenhart, Todd Davenport, yes. and, and, you know, uh, <laughs> some of those big names that have been preaching it for a while now. 
two people I've published with. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, it's true. We're, we're I think we're a good fit, you know, and, and people with a master's in public health or a PhD, even in, in some of the public health spaces will argue, well, you're not completely ready for population health. And I'm, you know, I agree, you know, they've got some more training and some more education and schooling on us. But at the same time, I think if we put in the time, if we do the extra work, uh, physical therapists are a great preventative type ally. You know, I think that we can work further up the stream to try to help treat people before they get sick or ill so that it, we're not treating it with meds and all, all down the line. I think it'll be more cost effective. I think, you know, it's tough because it's you're selling insurance companies on something that didn't happen, right? You're having to sell them on, on something that never really showed up. So it's like, well, how do we know your stuff worked if it didn't happen? It's like, well, that's why it worked because it didn't happen, you know? It's trying to prove a negative and prevention yeah. and prevention preventive medicine, which is my master's degree, is always been tough for that because yeah. you're trying to, and it's not just the insurance companies and policymakers, but it's patients as well. I mean, and that's what we're dealing with COVID a little bit. You're trying to convince people to do take an action, a behavior change or an action, even if, as far as taking a vaccination, to prevent something from happening. And then you have to say, see, it didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, and, and I think the, the, the bigger issue, too, for us is like, OK, you know, we've had kind of an identity issue for years. And, and you know, we, we haven't had a really good grasp on being able to show the public what it is that we do and what what our, you know, our brand is, if you will, as, as physical therapists. So, you know, it's tough to like go and, and add another tentacle or direction to that. But at the same time, I, you know, I feel like it's the way we probably need to head if we're going to try to make, you know, any big changes. Plus, at the end of the day, it's going to save a ton of money if we can get these people healthier earlier and just, you know, active and moving and, and not going down the road of obesity and diabetes and, you know, all of those things that, that we know are going to be associated with, uh, you know, the current lifestyles we have. You open the door for another direction we can go if, this, if you want to, but certainly is about the challenge that schools, academic institutions yeah. are having on diversity and different students. Clearly the numbers are there. We still have 1200 applicants for our school, but we're trying to improve the diversity in our student application and eventually our PTs who are out there serving the public and need to look like the people we serve. And what we need to do is, is we're moving you know, down the pipeline, so to speak, and trying to recruit students, not just at the undergraduate level and not just at the high school level, but now we're finding we're talking to middle school students because they need to know what a physical therapist is and what the uh, opportunities are for physical therapists. And if they're good in science and math and STEM, then it's not just medicine and nursing. There are other opportunities. And if we start getting out and, and showing them what physical therapists can do, then we will have a better pipeline of, of applicants and students and we'll improve our profession. So I think that's the big challenge for academia now. And, and that's what we're all dealing with is how to just improve, you know, students, but how do we get a more diverse population of, of students? And it's not just race, ethnicity, but it's socioeconomic, it's cultural, it's perspective, it's political, you know, all of those things. We need to do that to make our, make our profession more respected than it is outside of our and, and I'm sure that's a huge task that's put on the assistant dean's desk every once in a while too. Like, uh, hey, uh, how are we going to do this? What's the answer to this uh, diversity and inclusion issue? Uh, so congratulations. You've got that fire to put out as well. 
Well, Ira, tell us a little bit about like, you know, maybe a, a tip or a trick or just something you've learned over the years that you feel like would be helpful if somebody wanted to pursue, uh, you know, the, a dean position or an assistant dean position. What's, what's some takeaway advice that you could give to somebody looking to do that? Well, the first thing, as I said, is, is always to find good mentors, you know, and to look for the people that have trained you or have mentored you or just have been a good role model, you know, and, and I've had some fortunate experiences that throughout my clinical career and, a- and academic career, including our, our first dean, Barbara, Dr. Barbara Chapey, and then um, the, Tom McPoyle, and, and now Mark Ranking. So even though I've been at one place for a long period of time, I've been exposed to a number of people that I really look to as, as leaders. And then, so, and then once you identify that, I think it's really kind of stepping up and being involved. As I said, I've always been a person that when somebody asks me to do something, like I said, I don't say yes or no. I say how and when. And, and um, I look at that because I'm there to help people. I don't like saying no to anybody. And even though sometimes that gets me in trouble and gets over, you know, overburdened and so to speak, and even balancing life work balance, that whole thing. But it, it, it's, it's a learning opportunity for me. I, I, I say yes, because I want to do that because I'm going to come away learning something new. So I think that's it, is to jump on opportunities when you can and um, get yourself in different positions. And that becomes your um, toolbox of, of things that you can pull on then when you are asked to step into this leadership position. Clearly, yes, there are um, courses in education as a terminal degree, and, and I have a PhD in health and behavioral sciences, and you mentioned obesity, which was my dissertation work. So um, I was, you know, you always focus as a PhD or EDD in that, but there is also an educational track that you can take as well and become, you know, more of a better teacher, although some, most PhD programs focus more on research than that. But, but teaching is a part of it now, and certainly administration is a part of it, because it's understood as you get more degrees and more experience, you will work, move up a ladder and, and step into positions like that. So I think it's, you know, have a, a course laid out a little bit so you can step in and take the right courses and education opportunities, but also listen a lot and surround yourself with good people, as I said. I love those takeaway messages, Ira. I think that's a, a great recipe for her trying to start to pursue something like that. So thank you so much again for taking your time and for coming on the episode to just kind of talk to our audience about that position and different avenues and pathways to get there and different traits that we might have to have to to finish it out. We have one final question that we ask all of our guests. And that question is, if you could change one aspect of higher education, whether it be DPT or otherwise, what aspect would you change and how would you change it? So that that's easy. You know, I was thinking and it just popped right into my mind, but it's what's up there is, is the student debt issue. And, and again, being at a private Jesuit institution, you know, I'm not going to say we have to lower tuition and not saying it should be free. And my administrators would come after me and everything, but it, it, we do need to figure out how to make higher education more accessible. And I mean that as opposed to uh, in a financial aspect. In other words, can we make sure that students are getting quality education and universities are sustainable and and need income for that, but without having students have a debt that is unbelievable. I mean, it's a mortgage. I mean, when I went to school, I took student loans, but I paid them off pretty quick. And my income was three to four times my loan amount. Uh, Students are upside down right now. Their income potential 
is 25% of their loan amount per year. So it's a debt that they're saddled with that is, 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 is a challenge. And I believe that's the biggest danger to us as a profession because we need to figure out how to do that. And it may be to improve salaries and, and income potential like other health, like physicians. You know, physicians have a, a, a debt problem as well, but they can service that debt much quicker because they're out there earning a higher income. So is that the method we do? Do we have more, I know people get nervous at this, but government opportunities for loan repayment. Should student loans be tax um, interest-free? I really believe that. I mean, I believe they should borrow the money and pay it back, but why are we adding interest? There must be a way for government and financial institutions to be, you know, have that be serviceable. So that's what I believe is the biggest challenge for us. And we need to work together between educational institutions, whether they be for-profit or not-for-profit, whether they be private or, or state-run and, and financial institutions to be able to get our students through the programs and not saddle them with debt that's going to be with them for the rest of their life. Yeah, that's uh, basically the number one most given answer on the show for sure is the debt, to, <laughs> the debt to income ratio, right? And I struggled with this a lot teaching at a private university that, you know, graduates these students with exorbitant amount of debt. And the only way that I wrestled with it that I was okay with with teaching there was that I could weave in some of the, you know, opportunities that physical therapists have, even as students, you know, for other income potentials and other revenue streams, right? Whether it be starting your own business, uh, even if it's not a, a PT practice, let's say it's a, a marketing practice where you help get patients in the door of PT clinics, right? Or a personal training business on the weekends or evenings or something, right? Or, um, you know, a, a blog or, a, you know, a book that you've written about your experience and, you know, how it's led you to where you are today. And maybe it's something, you know, that you have, uh, I know I had a young man who had a brachial plexus issue at birth and he still went through and became a physical therapist, wrote a book about it, had a um, podcast about it. And that was his business. He was all about helping people with brachial plexus injuries. There's a million different ways that we can use our knowledge and our skill sets that we learn throughout grad school as physical therapists. We just need to start thinking outside the box a little and addressing the ways that, you know, we can kind of curb those student loans a little bit. If, if physical therapy is truly something you feel as a calling and love and want to do, you should be able to do that, you know, and I feel like uh, some of the programs out there are trying to address some of those uh, things you talked about, like uh, inclusion and, uh, you know, getting out into maybe some of the farther areas that are a little more um, out, you know, uh, from a population standpoint or much, you know, smaller, desolate type towns and, and, and areas that maybe don't have the opportunity for PT students. And we're bringing them in by using some of these flex programs and these uh, online hybrid type programs, you know, so some of the underserved populations, I think, uh, you know, and some of the smaller demographics, those get, you know, benefit from some of these new programs. But uh, at the end of the day, yeah, that debt to income ratio has to kind of level out a little bit because it's bad and getting worse. The hardest thing, and I, I think back now in my career that I've heard, and the most difficult thing for me to deal with has been a student who we brought in years ago, and he was a pharmacy rep, and he really wanted to be a physical therapist, and he was a diverse student and came from the South, and we brought him up, and we gave him a scholarship, and he went through PT school, and a number of years after that, I learned that he went back to being a pharmacy rep because he just couldn't afford to continue to be a PT. Now, I agree with you that PT has a lot of different opportunities and there's things you can still do 
outside of just being a clinician or you know being a consultant, being in marketing, being we have PTs who are website designers for PTs. So they're still using their PT. We have a, I have a, a student who now works in developing um, body weight support, uh, locomotion training for spinal cord, and she's using her PT but working as a, a consultant to this company. But 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 when someone says they are leaving the profession that they really love, you know, they're not frustrated with the profession. They just financially can't make it go for their family. That hurts because they put in three years of education and a lot of money, and they're still making a decision that this can't work. That's that's a problem for us, and I hope we can fix yeah, that. Absolutely. Well, again, Ira, thank you so much for your time and for coming on. I really appreciate it. Where can people reach out to you if they have uh, follow-up uh, questions or just want to see what you're up to these days? Well, I, I am at Regis University, and my email is igorman at regis.edu. Pretty simple. I've had that email for many years. I also have a cell phone. People are welcome to text me, 303-941-2700. I am on Facebook, and I am on Twitter at Ira Gorman. So, yeah, people can find me, and, and I'm always happy to hear from people and any questions. I get questions a lot about health policy. I get questions about starting practices. I've just got a, a question recently of somebody who wants to start a faculty practice, and I'm going to go talk to them about that. You know, I'm, I'm from New York originally, as you said. I went to school at Stony Brook, so, you know, that means I like to talk to people, and, and when people ask me a question, I give them an answer. So, please, everybody should feel comfortable reaching out to me, email, text, phone call. Stop by my office if you're in town. <laughs> yeah, awesome. We'll put all those links in the show notes so people can reach you easily. Ira, thanks again so much, man. It's been an absolute pleasure. Scott, it's been a pleasure. Thank you.